Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and I'm glad to have you listening in. And uh, if you are a regular, semi-regular, somewhat mildly attentive occasional In The Shift listener, any of those, then you're probably aware that uh, so far this year, in 2020, we've been kicking ourselves off with a series exploring divine intervention. And uh, we've been doing this because it's a topic that gets right to the heart of what we mean when we think and talk about God. What do we even mean by God? Uh, What can we expect from any kind of relationship with God? Is that a thing or not? And if so, what is it? What does it mean? What does it look like? How does all of this impact on our spirituality, our prayer, other spiritual practices? And I guess our way of fundamentally seeing reality itself. So we are really getting stuck into the issues and uh, trying not to take the easy path around the difficult topics, but to plow on through them and see what we bump into along the way. And today on the podcast, we uh, I'm really pleased to be able to bring you a fascinating conversation I, I just had uh, with theologian and philosopher Thomas J. Ord, who has written or edited Uh, More than 25 books, is the director of the Centre for Open and Relational Theology, and he is known for his work and research on love, open and relational theology, science and religion, and the implications of freedom and relationships for transformation. So it's quite a list of things uh, that we could possibly explore, and, and we did our best. So in this conversation, we... We really look at the themes of his work, especially in relation to his latest book, which is a book titled God Can't. And in this book, he explores questions of what it means to say that God is love and God is the source of all love, and then how this impacts on the way we understand God's activity in the world and why it might mean that there are lots of things that God simply cannot rather than does not do. And so we cover all sorts of terrain here uh, from what it might mean to experience or know God's love. Is that possible through to whether or not healing is a thing right through to earthquakes and volcanoes and the origins of the universe, and then we bring this all back down to earth with some reflections on what this might mean for prayer. So strap yourself in for a pretty far-reaching conversation. I think you'll agree by the time you've listened to the whole thing. And if you find yourself thinking along the way, hey, whoa, um, that's a lot of things to think about all at once. Uh, Don't worry, because as we go throughout this series, we'll be circling back around on some of these big ideas from several perspectives and continuing to help you make some sense of what to do with all of this. Um, But in the meantime, this is episode 33 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So I am here by the miracles of the interwebs with uh, Thomas J. Ord, or Tom, who among many things is a theologian and academic and has written a number of works contributing to the conversation about what we might mean to say that God acts in the world. Uh, And his most recent book is titled God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse and Other Evils. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Tom. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure to have this conversation, Michael. So uh, I was thinking about this uh, during the week and about when I was a a child, I still remember the Sunday when a particular song was introduced that really caught my attention and still goes around and around in my brain uh, today, which was a song called Nothing is Too Difficult for Thee. Mm. And 
and it would go around and around. The chorus refrain was this, nothing is too difficult for thee, nothing is too difficult for thee, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing is too difficult for thee. Uh, yes. And then it goes on to talk about God's great and mighty power and so on. And I was thinking about that sort of ironically as I, as I, as I thought about interviewing uh, you, the author of a book called God Can't. Uh, <laughs> oh, and um, and that the contrast between that is kind of beautiful. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a great title, isn't it? And I'm sure uh, that's feedback you've gotten. Um, that, that's, a, that's a book-selling title if ever I've come across one. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Some people think it's a marketing ploy and they expect that once they open the book, they'll find out I really don't mean it, but <laughs> I actually mean it. <laughs> yes, no, the first paragraph is no, you know, just jokes, uh, God can, but now that you're here, no, that's right. Um, so maybe you could, we could begin by you summarizing your overall, I guess, proposal, what you're, what you're trying to say fundamentally in, in the book, and then we can pick up on a few things from there. Sounds good. I'll, let me begin, though, by uh, telling you a song I used to sing in Sunday school. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so I have, <laughs> I have the same sort of background. Yeah. Um, I have a long time been thinking about God's love and God's power and the relation between the two, especially in light of suffering, um, unnecessary pain, pointless, uh, evil, genuine evil. And I think a lot of people think about this. It's, according to polls, the number one reason why atheists say they can't believe in God. And although I have no polling to support what I'm about to say, I suspect it's the number one uh, question people who do believe in God are asking. Why, if this God is so loving and so powerful, why does God not stop or prevent the genuine evils of the world. And I suspect you and most of your listeners have heard the usual kinds of answers to that. You know, God's trying to build our character. God's punishing us. There's a mystery. It's all a part of God's plan, et cetera, et cetera. Many people who use those kind of uh, answers will say things like God allows or permits evil in our lives. And I have found that this particular answer not only doesn't give me comfort, but does not comfort those who have endured horrific suffering, those mm. who have been tortured, uh, those who have been sexually abused, uh, people who friends have been murdered, etc. My proposal goes beyond the God won't view and says, as you mentioned, God simply can't prevent evil single-handedly. That is, God does not have the kind of ability to unilaterally or by fiat or acting all alone stop the horrific suffering, the genuine evils in the world. And this isn't because God is somehow constrained by the laws of nature or the devil has got God's arms tied behind the back or God has made some sort of commitment or promise not to intervene and stop things. Rather, my proposal says that God's nature is uncontrolling love. And because God can't go against God's own nature, God can't contradict himself or deny himself, says the Apostle Paul, God simply cannot control anyone or anything because God loves everyone and everything. Now, there are a lot of other 
um, additional ideas in relation to that one. But that's kind of at the heart, and that's probably the one that's the the newest, the, the most controversial of the ideas in this book, God Can't. Sure. And perhaps that's some of that is controversial. So just before we carry on with this interview, I wanted to jump in and note that we chatted for a while here about how this brings up questions for many people related to what we might term as God's sovereignty. And for lots of those within the Christian faith, if God exists, then God is in charge. So to say that God can't do things might be seen as calling that sovereignty into question. And uh, as we talk through this, ultimately what Tom suggests is that love is the thing about God through which we need to understand everything else. So rather than sort of starting with sovereignty or something else, some other attribute, or seeing all of these attributes as alongside one another, ultimately love is the predominant attribute of God through which we have to understand every other term uh, that we might use in relation to God. And so I wanted to get a bit of a sense of how he arrives at this conclusion about God's love. love is, as John Wesley would say, God's reigning attribute. And all the other attributes are important, but conceptually, we should understand them in the light of God's love. Mm. Okay, so let's let's zero in on that a little bit more. Um, Great. How do we come to that conclusion? Because if we if we perhaps open the Bible and we're like, I'm just going to read a bit about God, yeah, then you bump into all sorts of stories and accounts. And if you you do what I used to try and do, which was read the Bible in one year from start to finish, and get bogged down in Leviticus somewhere, perhaps yeah. num- perhaps numbers, which means that all I've really read up until that point uh, are yes, some some quite beautiful passages, but then also you're bumping into, and then if you go into if you make it all the way to Joshua and Judges, then you, then you're bumping into some pretty violent texts. You're bumping into some things that God does, and and you ha- you ask some there's some troubling questions that arise. Yeah, and yet there are these testimonies to this idea of God as gracious and loving, right throughout. The- the biblical narrative as well. So how how do you come to a place of landing on love as the reigning attribute, as, as the one we should pay more attention to? Uh, and and if, if that's the case, then then how do we negotiate some of the other portrayals of God really within, within the Bible? Yeah, great question. So as I read the entire canon, the all of Scripture, I think the themes of love are dominant. They're prominent. They're, as as uh, one theologian would put it, the whole tenor and scope of Scripture points to the themes of love. And I think it's particularly evident in Jesus Christ. I think Jesus gives us the clearest revelation of God. And that revelation, as far as I can tell in reading Scripture, is of a loving, forgiving, merciful God. Now, as you rightly say, there are some passages, many of them in the Old Testament, but a few in the New Testament Mm. as well, that portray God as unloving, at least at first glance. What some people try to do in those passages is read them and say that in some strange and contorted way, those are actually expressions of love. So when the Israelites believe God wants them to bash the babies' heads of their enemies against the rocks, in some weird and strange way, that's a loving act. Mm. I don't, I don't buy that. I think there are some passages of Scripture that simply get God wrong. They don't describe God adequately. I say that not because I think I'm smarter than everybody else or that I'm a 21st century postmodern Christian who's got, you know, got it all together. 
I say that because of this, what I think of as the dominant view of Scripture, uh, and that is the themes of love and this revelation of Jesus Christ. I also say that because when I think about the way we live our lives and our everyday experience, love seems time and time again to be a particular way and not in a bashing baby's heads against the rocks kind of way. And so it's these kind of hermeneutical moves as well as sort of reason and experience that push me to actually criticize some portions of the Bible. Now, that makes some people really uncomfortable. (laughs) I mean, I used to be a fundamentalist and an inertist myself, and the very idea that perhaps the Bible has contradictions used to really make me shake in my boots Mm. because I wanted to have a Bible that was totally trustworthy, consistent throughout. And if there were any inconsistencies, I would just say, well, they just seem from my human limited perspective, but in God's perspective, they're really not. Mm. I mean, some folks would go so far as to say, you know, God is kind and loving sometimes, but wrathful and and hateful other times. Mm. I never was drawn to that argument. But I tried to somehow squeeze in these difficult, violent passages in the light of love. And finally, at the end of the day, I just said, you know what? It just doesn't make sense. Mm. I'm willing to take the plunge and say the Bible as a whole can be my authority, but that doesn't mean that every story I think adequately describes God. Um, One of the things you talk about in the book is you talk about us knowing or experiencing uh, that love in, in sort of our real lives rather than as a as a theological concept, which I hold to. How do you think we actually do uh, experience, feel, know that kind of love? Um, and I say that because I yeah. guess some people have particular expectations of what that might feel like or experience, uh, be mm. experienced as, um, and that can either lead to a sense of great fulfillment if they feel that they, if that's what has happened for them, and for others left going, what does, it actually, what does that actually mean in, in real terms? Do you yeah, have any thoughts on that? A, yeah, that's a really thorny question because mm. some people will give witness to feeling overwhelmingly loved by God and other people just say, hey, I've never felt that. <laughs> and so is it the case that God is expressing that love to some and not others? Well, that wouldn't seem particularly fair. Uh, I don't want to blame it on God's deciding to love some in an emotional way or a feeling kind of way and not others. On the other hand, I don't want to blame us and say it's totally on us. You know, we're not listening carefully enough to God. One of the things that helps me is to move away from this kind of notion that feeling God's love means feeling a warm, fuzzy, or close connection while in the midst of maybe a worship service, Mm -hmm. and ask questions about when we feel those kind of emotions, when we are hugging our children, or looking at the starry night, or listening to our favorite album, or making love to our partner, etc., When we think in those broader terms, those deep senses of compassion, love, thrill, desire, whatever, in positive ways, and if we think God is the source of that, we don't have to say, well, making love to my partner, that was just God's feelings in me. We can say it's both (laughs) my partner and God, 
Or when we hug our children, we don't have to say, well, it was just God or just our children. We can say that is something, again, that's a synergy, a kind of movement together. And so if we begin to take seriously the omnipresence of God and recognize that there are times when we're maybe not sitting in the middle of the church thinking deeply about God, but when we feel these kinds of loving gestures, we can say to ourselves, you know, if God is the source of love, God must be present there as well. Mm, mm. Um, and I, I guess that's pushing back against a kind of a, a dualist or a, sort of an either-or framework where these things I can call God and things that God is doing and God's love and, and so on, then these things over here are the rest of life um, going to work, hanging out with my right. family, whatever it might be, and actually suggesting that there's there's a much deeper level of in- integration here than that, that rather than splitting these things into into two worlds. One of the things you say uh, in, in the book is you say the God who intervenes um, doesn't exist. <laughs> um, and then go on to say, I think, that, that God never intervenes because God is always already present. Could you unpack that a little bit more? What do you, what do you, uh, what do you mean by, by that idea? Yeah, I think there's two senses of the word intervene that people have in mind when they use it. One of them is kind of the sense that all of a sudden God steps into a situation as if God wasn't already there in the first place. Sometimes this is done in a very sophisticated way, like when David Hume, the philosopher, or philosophers of science talk about God's action in the world. They presuppose what in philosophy is called causal closure. That is, that we can somehow explain everything that's happening in our lives and in the world purely through natural causes, And then maybe every once in a while, God will intervene, and then you'll have this God coming into the causal structure. I don't think that makes a lot of sense from the Christian tradition or even this idea of God as being omnipresent. So I think God is already there. The other sense of intervene that is sometimes used is the idea that God sometimes single-handedly brings about results. This is what I call the controlling kind of God, that there aren't any other factors or agents or actors that contribute to the results coming about. But God unilaterally, single-handedly bangs something out, does something. And as I have argued in this book and many others, there's some real problems with that view. And one of them is that if God can do that, if God can single-handedly bring about results, then God is to blame for not single-handedly stopping all kinds of murders, tortures, rapes. You just go right down the line of Mm. genuine evils. So for those two reasons, I don't think it's wise for us to use that word intervene. Right. And that's, that's I think, an important conversation as well. And I I put out a thing to to, to some of the listeners just to say, what, what is their response to the idea of God intervening in their lives? Do they... Do they think that God does directly intervene? Um, and all of these responses come up for people. Uh, I'd like to think that God is somehow involved. You know, I'd like to think that because for many people, I think intervention means interaction, means God is responsive, you know, and, th- and that's the only framework through which to understand some kind of response to yeah. God. So you either have a God who intervenes, to use that language, and so then I can pray to that God to do things uh, that God might may or may not respond to me. Um, and uh, so I have an interventionist God, but then that might lead me. For some, they are 
quite happy to live in that framework and they do so for their lives and that's great, uh, I guess, for them. But but for a number of people, then they bump into moments or experiences or crises or disruption or simply just one day looking around at the world and saying, gosh, if God intervenes, then why, as you say, so little, really, we, we might say. Um, and so then the other option for many people only seems to be absentee. If I'm going to hold to any kind of belief in God at all, then God just simply becomes a an absentee father who maybe got, right. the, got the ball rolling and maybe will meet up at the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I can kind of believe in that as some kind of thing out there, you know. But but then what does that do to my spirituality? What does that do to my, exactly. to my life of, yeah. of, of prayer, my sense of meaning and, and so on? And I think people can end up feeling a little bit lost between those two options, which... Yeah, which help, I agree helping us you. to move away from an intervention, I think, becomes important there. Yeah, I, I like the way you frame that. I, I would even add two more options. So mm. let me take the two you have and put uh, two more with them and then describe my view in relation to those sure. four. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so let's say that on the right of my view are two particular views of God. One is the idea that God controls everything all the time. Mm. We'll call that classical Calvinism. I'm obviously against that view. Closer to my view is the idea that God doesn't control all the time, but controls sometimes, maybe to do a miracle here or there, mm. resurrect Jesus, create the universe, make sure, you know, there's God can sometimes act single-handedly to do something. And I've already mentioned the problem with that view is that if God can do it sometimes, why doesn't God do it a whole lot more mm. often? So those are to the right of my view. To the left of my view is the sometimes called deism. You called it the absentee God, the God that created things, but now is, as Bette Moore would say, uh, uh, not Bette Moore, Bette Midler would say, watching us from a distance. Mm. Um, so this is a not no interaction, none, nothing going on there. But closer to my view, but still different, is the God who's not out there, God who's present, but is kind of like the force in Star Wars. Mm. This is like a, a God who's not relational. It's kind of like the glue of the universe. You have to have this God around in order for things to exist, but it's not a relational God in any sense that our prayers might ha make a difference, not an interactionist kind of God. It's just kind of stuff, or maybe like the law of gravity or something like that. My view sits between those four <laughs> and says God is really active, God is really relational, interactive, we can affect God, but God simply cannot control anyone or anything. Perhaps that will help your listeners mm. get an idea of how I see my view in comparison with some other ones they've probably heard about. Okay, so if if we've got a God who is who is present rather than sort of intervening from outside of the system somewhere. Right. Um, you talk about God not being able to single-handedly, God, God is somehow at work and, and present uh, in and through all things or, or everywhere at all times, um, that God can respond and be at work. Then um, what does that look like and how do we cooperate with that? Um, yeah. Or, or not, or, or what's going on there. 
Yeah. So the word that I like to use, and you can find other theologians using it as well, is the word relational. And that is a relational God is present to and influencing us and influenced by us. What we do, all our actions, our prayers, everything that goes on affects God in some way. God's nature is unchanging, but God's experience changes in loving, giving, and receiving relationships with us and all creation. So this relational God is present and active, but cannot single-handedly bring about results because being relational and being loving, love doesn't, to use the Apostle Paul's language, love doesn't force its own way. One of my favorite illustrations of this is um, something that I did uh, 32 years ago. I was in a restaurant with my girlfriend. I reached into my pocket. I pulled out a ring and I presented this ring and I said, would you marry me? This was an act on my part. No one forced me to do it. It came out of my desires and my character, I suppose. But in order for this expression to love to have its result that I wanted, (laughs) this girlfriend of mine, who's now my wife, had to say, yes, I will marry you. And so it took a response, a cooperative response for the result of love that I wanted. I think God is always acting at all times and calling us to respond. We can respond poorly or we can respond well. When we respond well, we're cooperating with God's love. When we respond poorly, we're doing what most Christians call sin or doing evil. Um, And that's the kind of relationship that's at the very heart of everything we do in our lives. Right. So when it comes to then, uh, if we're thinking about, I guess, as 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 a larger way of seeing things, we're seeking to cooperate with God as a, as a God of love in the world. Mm-hmm. And then in a sense, that would that's the most human, the most flourishing way to be and to live. Right. Um, then we get to bumping into, let's say, sickness. Um, what does it mean to cooperate with God then? Because I think growing up in the Pentecostal tradition, um, the, langu- the language of faith um, could be by some used to make you feel um, like you weren't particularly cooperative. Uh, that what you needed yeah. to do was believe more, and just and if you believed more, then then the thing would happen. You know, I um, I was prayed for at a meeting when I was maybe sixteen or something like that for my for my eyes to be healed, and by by a visiting healing evangelist who then told me I needed to not wear my glasses for. And, because that would be claiming the healing, you know. So I needed to uh, take the glasses uh, off, and and and, and yeah. I'm very and I'm very short sighted, you know. So uh, what proceeded was a was a day or two of just walking into things um, <laughs> uh, before I sort of eventually what I felt like was giving in because I had to because I had to go to school and and do my work and participate in in life without stumbling into everything. Uh, but there was yeah. a part of me that felt like I had given in before my miracle, you know, because I hadn't I hadn't pressed in far enough uh, in, in yep. faith. And so how do we avoid landing there when we start to use language of cooperation and how we respond to God's love and so on? When it comes to something like a healing, because my my sense is I don't I, I'm not comfortable with a a um and I 
and I'm sure you're not either, with a with a starting to blame the victim scenario where no, oh, no. What, what you haven't done is you simply haven't X, Y, Z. Right. And I talk about that exact issue, mm. blaming the victim in uh, the book God Can't. My proposal on the table might come as a surprise to many people. It's the proposal that there are lots of agents in cooperative capacities in the universe. Here I'm not talking about demons. I'm talking about very the very cells, organs, muscles, and structures of our bodies, entities in the wider world. In other words, we can consciously say, yes, God, I want to be healed. I'm cooperating consciously and yet have actors and factors in our bodies that are obstacles to God's healing. And because God loves everyone and everything, including ourselves, God can't control anyone or anything, including ourselves. Even God can't single-handedly force ourselves to change, or, or in your case, your eyes to change so you had perfect vision. This, of course, sometimes people are healed. Sometimes people do get their vision. Uh, so we can, in those instances, say the conditions were conducive for this miracle, although insofar as there are cells that cooperate with God, those cells were cooperating. In other words, we can have an overall framework for accounting for why sometimes miracles occur, but the vast majority of time they don't, without blaming the victims for not having enough faith. Okay, so you um, you are still open to healing, to miracles, uh, because I, I, am, yes. I, I think that's often one of the one of the first things, especially when people head into a uh, an unraveling of things. Yes, that can be one of the the um, the things that comes unstuck pretty early on. Um, yes, is God actually really? And when you stumble into perhaps stories that are, are difficult to take seriously, or you you know you realize, oh, that story that I thought was this, in fact, turned out to yeah. not be quite as authentic. Or you know, a lot of uh, cynicism and doubt can come to the surface, and and when you start yes. to um, pull apart some of the the more just believing trust you you might have had earlier on, but you seem yeah, to I still mean, still be able to hold on to a to a belief in miracles and, and healing. From what I'm hearing from you, yes, I do. Uh, just to tell you a little bit about my own story, I was once one of those people who was really involved in healing evangelism. Mm-hmm. I did lots of praying for people, prayed for you know, uh, prayed against demons if I thought they were present, and prayed for the kind of healing that I saw. At least it seemed to be witnessed to in the Bible. But after a while of doing that, I had to admit my results were pretty anemic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my success rate was in the single digits. The people who did claim to be healed usually got healed of colds or headaches, not leukemia. Sure. And uh, so I swung from being totally in on the God heals everyone who has faith view to the opposite view, which is, well, God's not really in the healing business. Any healing that comes about is simply because of medicine or therapy, and that's totally through natural causes. And so I was uh, basically the God of deism or the God of the force, the glue of the universe. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that view is that people really are sometimes healed, and perhaps even more importantly, 
if we think medicines, therapy, surgery can heal us and God's not involved in those, then we've got some real problems. Sure. Like God's really not the source of all good in the, in the universe. Mm. So that got me to start exploring the possibility that there has to be some kind of cooperation, be they through more traditional medical means or untraditional medical means. And sometimes our uh, activities can positively affect our bodies and the atmosphere, but none of that is somehow single-handed. None of that is controlling on God's part or on our own. And that steered me into this more middle way, which makes me open to miracles, but not saying miracles come through God supernatural, single-handedly banging things out with those who are, you know, have full faith and cooperate. Mm -hmm. um, so if we think about, you know, if we just sit on this, this healing question for a bit, because I think it's a helpful way, it's, a, it's one of those areas that's both very personal for people and, and gets to the heart of this kind of God yeah. interacting and responding or not. And often gets to the heart of people's deep concerns or troubling questions. Yes. Yeah. If you talk about sort of cells and molecules and molecules and, and organs um, also playing a role in, in responding or being obstacles um, to God's uncontrolling love, how how does a how does a cell respond to or not to love? Like, if at the, at the very kind of I guess basic level of what, what's what's happening? How, how does how does a, I, could, I guess what I could think would be that that people might understand how I as a person could respond to God's love or not. So I can because I'm a sentient being and I can um, mm. I can say, oh yes, God, I I I feel this loving call towards behaving in this kind of way or acting in this kind of way. Yeah. Um, but for um, building blocks of reality or of even our own bodies that perhaps aren't conscious or sentient in that kind of way. They don't seem to have that kind of reality to them. What right. does it mean for them to be responsive or obstacles? How, how do you understand that? Yeah, great question. I don't think cells are conscious. I don't think cells have something like free will like we do. But I do think cells have the capacity to respond to their environments. And I think just about every scientist would say this because when we see the way cells or, or various organisms act in isolation by prods or other organisms in their environment, we say they respond in certain kinds of ways. So I don't think that is so strange to think about. It's just that most people, when they think about healing, they tend to think about their bodies or other things in the world kind of like little machines. And little machines don't have any capacity to have self-determination or um, they're, they, they're, well, they're, they're aggregates to use the mm. technical language. And aggregates don't respond as a whole. And if we set aside that machine kind of way of thinking and get back to thinking of ourselves as organisms with organisms inside organisms and societies of organisms, then we have a way to talk about real responsiveness. But the kind of responsiveness that a cell can do is far less uh, uh, far less than what we as conscious 
agents can do. We might say our minds have a far greater range of responsive freedom than a cell has. And if we use that kind of analogy, then we can also understand why cells just can't up and change dramatically overnight as if they have conscious free decisions from a wide variety of uh, possibilities. No, they have limited responsiveness. And therefore, we have to think about the environment. And I think God is part of that environment. Okay. Uh, If we were to move then beyond that to um, components of reality that aren't what we'd call life traditionally. So we think about um, an earthquake or... You know, these are these are parts of reality that cause deep suffering, um, mm. and that we know we can't control. Right. Um, and clearly, it doesn't seem to be that God goes around controlling earthquakes. Um, but I, I don't think so. No. Some people do, but yes. I don't think so. Yes, and you, yeah. <laughs> yes so they can. That comes back to the uh, God using things, uh, suffering to to punish or teach, right? Um, right. And it's usually your least favorite group of people have obviously uh, been, the, been the reason for that particular earthquake. Um, do, do you see sort of the rest of reality in a, in a similar way? Is that less responsive again to than cells, for example? Do you see all of all of reality through that kind of lens? I do, yeah. Right. Um, so let's start with what we think are the most basic units of reality. Uh, what physicists uh, say is happening at the quantum level. Uh, The vast majority of physicists think that the very most basic structures of reality are not like little robots that are entirely determined. Uh, They talk about indeterminacy even at the smallest levels. Now, as we start to think about what's called natural evils, uh, earthquakes versus evils that's caused by creatures, whether that they be uh, complex like you and me or simpler creatures like mm-hmm. ants or whatever, then we start to get into thinking about the way these things are organized. And so I mentioned aggregates. Aggregates are like rocks or water or computers or window panes. Whereas organisms are like humans, dogs, bunnies, organs, cells, etc. Those things, we might call them animate objects. They have some kind of organizational patterns and arrangements such that they have the ability to act as a whole. Whereas a rock and a window pane doesn't have that ability to act as a whole. Mm -hmm. The little units that make up those things have a a small measure of, of... Uh, a responsiveness or agency or indeterminacy, but as a whole, we might say philosophically, the rock qua rock, mm-hmm. it doesn't have that kind of responsiveness. As we begin to move and thinking through carefully the way things are arranged and believing that God loves everyone and everything at every level of existence, then when it comes to thinking about hurricanes, tornadoes, volcano eruptions, etc., we can say that even God is not controlling at that level, even though they're not agents like you and me, but because God loves everything, even at the simplest level, God is uncontrolling even there. Right. If we, um, I'm kind of spinning in a few different directions here as, as, as things come <laughs> sure. to mind, but uh, if we think about then God as, as creator, yes. which is the classic kind of, that's the classic Christian claim. Um. Do you see a connection then between the way the world is, the way the universe is, 
which is that it's, it is filled with um, pain and the capacity for suffering and what we might call natural evil as, as well as moral evil. But uh, perhaps we can understand moral evil in the terms of the things we do to one another more easily than the sort of the fundamental pain that seems to sit at the heart of, of so much of the universal experience. Um, do you see that in thinking about God as creator, is, is that uncontrolling love from the very beginning what then leads to a universe that um, is... You know, because I think the the where does evil where does evil come from where does suffering come from question comes up for people as well. Right, why, right. why is there a universe? You know, yes, if God is so loving, then why make a universe which seems to have so much capacity for for pain in it? Um, do you have a yes. you know, what's what would be your response to that? Yeah, I've got a long response. I'm going to try to make it short. Okay, <laughs> um, it's just I just think... these are the small questions of life. You know, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I think when people have used that word God as creator, they have unfortunately had in mind what God did at the very beginning. I happen to believe the universe is roughly 13.7 billion years old. Mm. So they have in mind something about God did at the beginning. Um, I think we ought to think about God creating moment by moment. So God is a part of creating right now. I think God creates alongside other entities and creatures and you and me. We can be co-creators, but God is an ongoing, or we might say using the Latin, a continua creatio, continual creator. So if that's the case and we start backing things up and we think there's something like an evolutionary picture is right, or even if you're a young earth creationist, you're still going to go backwards in this kind of way. Um, And God is always then creating in tandem with creatures. And since God is uncontrolling, that creating is never single-handed. It's always a tandem kind of event. Then we can come back 13.7 billion years ago, let's say, and ask the question, yeah, but what about the very first moment of that creating? In that scenario, according to at least many Christians, there was nothing And so God couldn't be creating alongside of things in that particular first moment. God must have had the power to single-handedly decide the initial structures of the universe, et cetera. I don't think that's the right way to think. Okay. I think that the Bible and a lot of other reasons doesn't believe in creation out of nothing. I think God has always been creating I have a Latin phrase for it and a book half written on it, (laughs) some other books that I've edited. But basically the idea is this. God always creates in one moment out of that or in relation to that which God created in the previous moment. And that creating has, has been everlasting, which means that before 13.7 billion years ago, God was creating, perhaps God created our universe in a big bang out of the chaos of a previous universe, but it's God's very nature to always be creating in love alongside whatever has been created previously. Now, that's a big, wild set of <laughs> issues there, <Sure. laughs> um, but uh, that's how I handle that question of, yeah, well, but if God created things at the beginning, God set up the scenario, then mm-hmm. why didn't God you know, make a world in which evil wasn't possible? 
Well, I say that's just not possible for God because God's always creating in relation to others and God's creating is always uncontrolling. So at this point, we're, we're, we've kind of gone, we've gone cosmic, right? So we're, yeah. we're, we're, uh, <laughs> which I think is important to do because that's where the questions lead. You know, that's, that's where they take you. Yeah. You sort of ask that question and that leads to this one and so on. If we bring it back to the personal, then if this is the kind of God we're, we're talking about, um, what do you think that means for um, prayer, for example, and, and, and someone's way of praying? Uh, and I ask that because I think um, that's become one of the questions I get a lot as well, is what do I do with that now because now I'm not quite so sure of the frameworks that I once held. Um, can I still ask God to do things? Um, yep. And... If so, what what does that mean if those things don't happen? You know, people, I think, bump into those kind of conundrums in there so they can think all of this uh, stuff around question. When it comes to then, I still want to pray, but I don't know how I don't know how to anymore. Do you, do you have any thoughts or reflections on on how this might help to shape the way people think about that? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, one of the, the the pleasures I have is I speak a lot to uh, audiences, sometimes of very conservative Christian audiences, other times to very liberal or even non-Christian audiences. And I find that in those audiences have two very different ways of thinking about prayer. The more conservative folks usually have an idea of petitionary prayer, asking God to do something, in which they expect that God will at least sometimes actually single-handedly bring about these kind of results. So back to that word intervention, they'll talk about God intervening to do something. And we've already talked about the problems with that mm. view. On the more liberal end of things, folks have gotten really dissatisfied with the interventionist God. And so when they talk about prayer, they'll usually say things like, well, prayer is good for me. And so they don't think it's really having an effect on God because they don't have a relational God, for instance, some of them. Mm. Or they think to themselves, well, if it does have an effect on God, God's really not going to do anything because God can't intervene. And so when I pray, it's really kind of self-help. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there's something important to self-help and self-therapy, but my view of prayer goes beyond simply for praying for my own you know, that's going to affect me positively. And there are two steps that I have in mind here. So first of all, as I've already said, God's a relational God. Everything we do has an effect on God, including our prayers. Secondly, I think we live in an interrelated universe such that our actions have an impact upon others from the smallest and simplest to the most complex. So combining the idea that we actually have an effect on God and that our actions have an effect on others in the universe, we can say that our petitionary prayers can actually open up new options, new opportunities, new avenues for God to work in the world outside ourselves, but in ourselves as well, such that God may be able to act in ways and call and be interactive in the world in ways that were not possible had we not prayed in the first place. It doesn't mean that our prayer somehow, you know, put God on turbocharge and previously God couldn't single-handedly fix things, but now that we've prayed and affected the world, God can. I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. I am saying, though, that because God is not only present to us, but present to all reality, 
that our prayers kind of act as new data for God in the next moment to act in new kind of ways. And that means our prayers actually do matter. So in, in thinking about uh, our prayers... As so I just want to jump back in before the end of our conversation and say that we had a bit more of a convo about prayer during our chat here, actually, that I don't have time to include in this episode. Um, so I decided to take some of that and we'll include it in an episode later in this series when we get to talking about the practicalities of how our views of God impact on spirituality and prayer and so on. So do stay tuned for that uh, later on. In the meantime, uh, just to finish, I asked Tom to suggest where you could find his work and to stay up to date with anything he might be putting out there in case you want to follow up with that. Yeah, sure. I'm engaged in a lot of social media, but um, my personal website probably is a good place to go. It's basically my full name.com. That's Thomas J J A Y Ord O O R D.com. And there I post tons of blogs and you can see my books. I'm a photographer. I've got photos there and there's information on my speaking. It's just all kinds of stuff there if you'd like more info. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a, it's been a great conversation. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it too, Michael. Thanks for the invitation. No problem. Okay, thanks very much. Okay, so that's our conversation. That's the conversation I had with uh, Tom Ord. Uh, not too long ago. There are a few big, big ideas explored here. And so, we'll, as I said in the intro, we'll be circling back around some of these from some uh, from a number of different angles, perhaps in future episodes, to help us get a grasp on the different ways of thinking about God and how these might be helpful uh, to you. But in the meantime, if this does bring up particular questions for you, please, of course, get in touch via intheshift.com or through the various social media avenues of which I'm sure you're aware. Or, of course, you can support the work of In The Shift by going to patreon.com slash In The Shift and finding us there. Thanks again to Thomas J. Ord for joining the podcast today. And thanks as always to Reese Michelle for making the audio experience pleasurable and listenable to your beautiful ears. I'm looking forward to you joining me for the next episode of In The Shift. <laughs>